Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So as usual, we've got a new perspective today. And I say this a lot. It's what I love about this show, that it allows me to talk to really interesting people and get perspectives from all across the country. So today we're heading down to Texas to hear what the situation sounds like on the ground down there. Ernie Manus is a uh, local personality in Houston. He works for Houston Public Media and appears on both their NPR and PBS stations there. Uh, he's done a lot of TV in his career. He's done a lot of radio. If you're from Houston, you definitely know Ernie. You know his voice. You know his face. And he got on my radar because they started this show, Houston Matters Special Edition, which is an afternoon radio program that they actually started in February, and Ernie's been hosting it. And at the time, it was looking at coronavirus as this kind of remote threat, this this thing that was far away that might get here. And then it became this story where it was in the U.S., but it was primarily at that point in New York and Seattle and here in Massachusetts. It was in a lot of places, but it wasn't in Texas. And at that time, production of Houston Matters Special Edition moved to home. So Ernie was, was broadcasting from his house every single day, talking about coronavirus. And then, you know, in the last month or two, cases have been spiking in Texas. And all of a sudden, this show that had started to cover this sort of national story became this very, very local story. And so Ernie's been reporting on that for the last, what, four months, five months? And I really wanted to hear that perspective of what's happening in Texas. So we spend a lot of time just sort of on painting that picture of, of what's being reported on, what he's hearing, the people that he's talking to, what's their experience. But Ernie also just has an incredible broadcast career. He got a start in Chicago, working for both radio and television. He moved to Houston in the 90s and started working for Houston Public Media. He did a show for a long time called Interviews, where he would talk to interesting guests. Uh, he did a show called Manor of Speaking, M-A-N-O-R of Speaking. That was kind of a wrap-up show to Downton Abbey. That aired on PBS stations across the country. And now he's been doing this Houston Matters special edition. So that show is available to stream daily at 3 o'clock central time at HoustonPublicMedia.org. And then it also gets posted as a podcast. So if you're interested in, in what the picture looks like in Houston, go check out Houston Matters special edition and listen to what Ernie has to say here. It's a really fascinating conversation. We talk about coronavirus. We talk about broadcasting. We talk about celebrity encounters. We talk about him being a gay broadcaster. So lots of interesting things. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my interview with Ernie Manus. So I want to start with a question that I ask all my guests and uh, just tell me how your uh, how your quarantine has been. How have the last four months treated you? Okay, so a lot of my friends get mad at me about this. I'm loving quarantine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm taking care of my mother who's in her 80s uh -huh. and so she's here with me all the time. So the two of us are together and I'm kind of envious of my friends who are locked away all alone. <laughs> really? <laughs> because they get those quiet, quiet moments yep. where here there's always something going on. Right. But um, I kind of just, I know it's difficult and I think we all are getting a bit stir crazy at times. And that'll probably come out during this interview, my stir craziness. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an odd world to live in where I don't go and see my friends. And I can perfectly understand the people getting more relaxed in there, isolating and doing the things you're supposed to do out of sheer boredom. And it's hard to stay vigilant against something you don't 
daily see right other than through numbers and information if you're lucky enough not to have had it touched your family or friends and so it's strange you know but i think i'm handling it pretty good I, i've always enjoyed laying on the couch and watching tv so <laughs> this has played right into my wheelhouse <laughs> there's been time for that do you think in having your mother there does that change your tolerance for this virus like are you, are you more vigilant i guess is what i'm trying to ask uh, yes. are you more careful when you go out than you know maybe some of your peers would be yes my partner works at a hospital uh-huh. and so it's always like we can't get together yep. because i don't want to bring anything home to my mom oh, even wow. though he's really good about doing all the precautions he can yeah. i know he's exposed to it every day right is he tending to covid patients uh no he works in a radiology department but at his hospital they have asked him to go down and do the testing gotcha so he has been there at the end of those long lines testing wow. people for covid and his staff does that so you have to think in those terms which you would never have had to thought think about before right. you know it's like well i feel good for me but what does it mean for her and uh, one of my best friends, he, he used to come over most weeknights and we'd watch TV and fix dinner and stuff. And I know he's more laxed in his his uh, diligence during yeah. this. So he can't come around. Yeah. Know? Even my brother, when my brother comes to visit, we put mom out on the balcony and my brother's down in the driveway and he talks to her from there. <laughs> so we've really taken it to the extreme. But, you know, she's in her 80s and I want to make sure she weathers this. Yeah. It is interesting, just sort of that that different level of tolerance for it. Like, I feel like in everybody's mind, they're doing the best they can. <laughs> and it's just it's mm-hmm. such a tough thing right now to sort of like when I see friends or family that I feel like aren't being as careful as we are and wanting to, you know, put them at arm's length a little more than I normally would and just sort of but but their reaction is like, well, I'm being careful. And I'm like, yeah, but you went here, here, and here, and I'm not doing any of that. You know what I mean? Like, it's right. it's, it's such a strange, yeah. just, we all think we're doing the best we can, but we all have a very different definition of what that looks like. Right. I mentioned my friend a minute ago. He has been getting together with another friend of his and her children, and he goes up to their house, and her husband is also a doctor. Yeah. And yet he won't go to the grocery stores. He thinks that they're a hotbed of of terror. I will go to the grocery store with my little rubber gloves on and my mask and the whole kit and caboodle, and yet I won't see other people. So we each have things that we think and we're deciding for ourselves or where we're comfortable. And it's just interesting how different people interpret it. Yeah, it really is. And I I feel like you've got a really interesting perspective on this, too, just because uh, at Houston Public Media, you guys started. Well, let me ask. So this Houston Matters special edition that started in February, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of morphed into covering coronavirus in Texas. But was that the original intent of it? Yeah. As soon as we heard what was going on, we have a morning show here called Houston Matters. Yeah. And they decided they wanted to focus on what was going on with this new virus that was going around and that they felt had um, had the potential to be something very dangerous. And especially in our area, because we're such an international city. So we started off right away, probably, I think, the third week of February. We had our first Houston Matters special edition, which was all COVID related. And we stayed on that right through. I missed one day hosting it because I had to do the Houston Public Media Spelling Bee. (laughs) And so our morning host filled in for me that one day. But other than that, for this many months, every day from three to four o'clock, we're on talking about COVID-19. 
we did notice, though, during um, George Floyd that there was a point to have a different conversation sure. and it was just as important. So we, we took some uh, time to talk about the situation in our country when it refers to race and per- police brutality. So we took that on for a while and we've tried to fold that now into our programming a bit. And then also with schools now opening, we've moved a little from medical to some of the social issues that people are facing about this. We've opened it up for business. So we found ways to to spread out while still staying true to what the idea of the show is. All of that being said, in mid-August, we're going to take a two-week break, and then the show is going to come back rebranded with a broader focus and becoming a sounding ground for our community to have a place to come each day and talk and share. And with that in mind, even during our show, because only so many times can we say, what's your question? We've evolved it into what's on your mind. Mm. So people are calling in not just with their questions, but how they're feeling about what's going on with COVID, how they're adapting to it, what they think should happen with school. So it's 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 taught me a lot. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And, And there's such an interesting kind of intersection there, too, of just sort of all of these things bubbling to the surface at once of, you know, sort mm-hmm. of the quarantine and then, you know, combining that with the, with the racial protests and the, all of those things sort of converging, you know, they're separate stories and they're separate storylines. But at the same time, it, it does feel like it's kind of one big, I don't know, one big puzzle to make sense of, right? Well, they, they definitely impact each other. It's not the first time we've seen police brutality, but I think you have an entire country basically that's locked at home and watching television in a different way and are frustrated and angry and they see something like this happen and even though they know it's happened before it touched a nerve and i think if we hadn't been in a covid lockdown if this wasn't going on the reaction may have been somewhat different Mm. if people didn't have the opportunity to be able to go out to rallies and such during the week it would have been different and so i think yeah all of it is interconnected these days and you can't separate one from the other i think that's part of our our relaunch is to say, you know, everything in our community touches everything in our community. And we need to be able to to see that connection and share our thoughts on it. Yeah. And I feel like there is there has been this sort of coming together in this time, too, of of really mm-hmm. sharing ideas and, and listening to each other, as you say, in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened, you know, just four or five months ago. People are so yeah. busy in their yeah. own worlds and we're all sort of experiencing all these major shifts at the same time. Yeah. And it's it's given us all an excuse to talk about it. You also mentioned when you talk about the uh, racial injustices and such that we have been very fortunate here in Houston in that both our county judge and our mayor both acted very quickly on this subject uh-huh. and shut things down, put stay-at-home orders in place. They were They were on it early. And so I think that's what's helped keep... The infection numbers are spreading, and Texas itself we know is a terrible hotspot, and communities around us are getting hit very hard, and it's spreading quickly even in the city of Houston. But we're not seeing the numbers that other major metropolitan areas saw, Yeah, and it started to get worse once we started opening up the economy. Yeah, I think the, the mixed messaging that came with that led people to feel it's over or that there is some way we're controlling it. So now it's safe to go back out. And I think reeling that back in has been quite a challenge at this point. Yeah. I mean, Texas as a state reopened on May 1st, as you say, it sounds like Houston may have been later, right? Well, we reopened with the judge's orders we had, or the, the governor's orders we had to follow, but our judge and our mayor looked at ways that they could still push information out there and 
push back a little bit where they could. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, when it comes to all this, I'm a, I'm on the side with let's be a little more conservative on how we address this. And by yeah. that, I mean, I'm going to go a little longer for lockdown. I'm going to say, stay out of school a little longer. I'm going to say, we've got to wear these masks even more than we are yeah. because I just every day hear the science, hear the reports, understand, learn more about how this virus spreads. And I just feel that an ounce of uh, prevention is worth whatever a pound of, I don't know how the yeah. expression goes. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'd rather us, we had a doctor very early on, Dr. Hazeltine, who is a global health expert and he works out in New York and has his global health initiative. He was talking about, you know, if we shut everything down completely, for four to six weeks, this would have been over. Right. And it's things like that. It's like if you put the hard work at the beginning, you can reap the benefits later on. But the kind of patch meal put together, a little here, a little there, maybe do some, close back, open up, that kind of messaging really is is making this more difficult, I believe. I, I, no, I totally agree with you. And, and it does feel like all that progress that we made for you know the last four months, it, it just gets undone. If you, if you try to reopen too early, if you try to get back to normal too soon. Okay, I'm going like, yeah. to give you a little bit of a rainbow and a happy thought and all sure, of that. Sure, I'd love one. Because uh, I thought about that a lot. And I think that we didn't undo anything. What we have to realize mm. is the time we were shut down gave doctors and frontline medical people the chance to learn better treatments. Yep. And therefore, we're reaping the benefit of that now. Yes, the numbers are going up. The infection rates are going up. But people keep saying, yeah, but the death rate isn't as high as it was before. But that's because we had that time. When mm. things were quieter and things were leveling off and slowing down or hadn't grown too quickly in the outlying areas outside of like New York as a major hotspot, things were being developed that are helping us better now. So yes, we could have done more. We could have stayed closed longer, but I don't want anyone to think the sacrifice they made early on was for naught because it really has saved lives. We can save more, but we didn't totally throw everything away. That's, okay. that's my little ray of hope in that story. I, I will take that <laughs> optimism. I, I like that. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. Just sort of looking at, at places like New York or Seattle or even here in Massachusetts, sort of at the beginning mm -hmm. of this, you know, we're, we're the hot spots. And now we're seeing that move to, to Texas, to Florida, to Georgia, California. Do you feel like just in, in sort of your reporting around Houston, at least, like were there lessons learned from what happened in some of those early hotspots that informed this wave that you guys are seeing now? I think at our administrative and leadership level, locally, lessons were learned and they watched very closely. Uh -huh. I think, it's, I, I don't want to say anything to upset anybody who doesn't agree with my point of view here, sure. but I feel that the politicization of it all has been so dangerous to the battle. Yeah. And I feel our local leaders have done a good job of following the science and not the politics. Right. And I wish more would do that because I think that has helped us during this hotspot. About six hours south of us down in the panhandle, it, it, it's much worse about what's happening in Texas, you know, and I guess the valley, not the panhandle, excuse me. And so our area has been lucky at this point, even though our numbers are high. And I think it's because we're watching science more, but that's not to say they did anything wrong. Right. They've just been hit hard. Yeah. So 
Well, and just sort of on that that political piece of it, like, I don't know, in my experience of being in Texas, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Houston and Austin and Dallas, you know, I've seen a lot yeah. of, of the major metropolitan areas of the state anyways, maybe not mm-hmm. out in the country, but there is an individualism there. There is mm-hmm. a, you know, there's a culture of sort of freedom. And I wonder, you know, I feel like that's been part of the rhetoric, at least around masks of sort of like, I don't want to do this because that's my that's my way of expressing myself or that's my right as an individual like i guess that that's my perception from a distance Mm -hmm. is that the reality that you're seeing on the ground too there are those people that say that there is that school of thought you know and i understand we try to do that too on the program is to understand both sides of the issue i mean i'm strongly opposed to just because the opposite side feels something if the science or there isn't fact behind it i don't think we have to report it Mm. i don't think we have to give any fringe group or political group a voice if in fact what they're saying is dangerous but i think we also have to understand points of view from other sides such as those, we did a, a segment on the show, we had people call in why they choose not to wear a mask. Uh-huh. And it opened our eyes to a lot of the reasons that people don't wear masks. It's the medical conditions, the claustrophobia, the the different elements of why they felt they couldn't wear a mask. It wasn't that they didn't care. It's that they were concerned. So they may not wear a mask, but they limit their trips out because they don't wear a mask. Yep. So there is the gentler side of this that isn't all we're, we're going to like hold our masks up as a sign of our freedoms, right. you know, and it's trying to balance all that. It's understanding also, it's easy for a lot of us to talk about keeping the economy closed because in my case, I'm still being paid. I right. still do my show. I have my equipment here. I'm able to work. I don't have a family to feed outside of, as I mentioned, my mom and myself. Yeah. And it's hard to get into the mindset of a parent who was just living paycheck to paycheck and trying to, or any person, paycheck to paycheck, trying to pay their bills, trying to pay their rent, trying to get their food together, and being told that the death rate is seems so low compared to the infection rate and thinking, you know, that's a risk worth taking because I need to feed my family. I right. need to have a place to live. And it's having the opportunity to appreciate that school of thought and understand where those folks come from and realize, you know, there's, there's multiple sides to this story. It's not always, I think major commercial media wants to, it's easier to explain the story one side and then the other side. Sure. And actually there's lots of shades of gray in this and that we need to hear each other and we need to work through this so that we can all succeed together. Yeah. Like anything in life, there's, there's a yeah, lot of subtlety yeah. that it's, it's worth appreciating. Uh, I want right. to ask too, just sort of, as you've been hearing listener feedback and getting phone calls from, from listeners, what has either been like an overwhelming trend that you're hearing or maybe what's been something that surprised you? that you hadn't considered before? A lot of it surprises me every day. And then a lot of it is the same every day. It's kind of funny how that works. (laughs) And it's interesting how what seemed so obvious two weeks ago now is shocking and surprising today. And that's a weird twist that happens in this because we're staying on the same story basically every single day. I guess I'm still surprised the people that call in and are asking about wearing a mask. Hmm. And uh, we talk about this sometimes, folks that aren't like, I live right outside of our downtown area where a lot of the uh, social life happens in this city. And I've seen these these bars and these clubs reopen. I've seen people packed in there and friends tell me they walk by them and there's lines outside to get in. And, and I don't understand 
where we have failed at getting the message out or explaining it in a way that resonates with this audience, yeah. you know, this part of the audience. So that still surprises me that after all these months and all this talk that's out there about what you need to do, how people don't see don't see it through the same way I do, I guess, you know, I, I guess I understand people perceive things differently, but I really think the world would be better if everyone saw it my way. <laughs> we <laughs> all do, right? So much easier. <laughs> yeah. So it's, that's, that's the big battle. I think all the time is trying to put yourself in the mind of people who haven't gotten the message or hear the message differently, or don't understand why I, I keep, I had a, a, an email that came into me about how they said I salivate every day over the death numbers. And I realized how that could be interpreted. My, my idea was to remind everyone every day, people are still dying. Yeah, and so serious. for a while there, we would start the show with today's death toll has hit so-and-so. But I can also see people who think, wow, why is he telling us this every day? You know, they can get fatigued from it too. Yeah. So I tried to to temper that a little bit or at least put it into a different context when I do mention it. Sure. And as you say, it's so hard to visualize that, you know, if you say 170 people died today or, you know, whatever the number right. is, like it's hard to get your head around what that really means. Right. And it becomes kind of um, I hate to even use these terms insignificant when you think the nation has 330 million people who right. live here. Yeah. And you think about how many people in the past, because these have gone down, but were killed in car accidents a day and all of this stuff. But then when you flip it to the other side and you say, you know, like, because daily we're at like a thousand deaths, a little over a thousand deaths in the country, I think is current where we're at. It's like, that is a thousand individuals. That is a thousand people. Yeah. If you think about your elementary school classes, that's like, um, my math's going to be way off here. I mean, t uh, five of those classes back in my day would be a hundred. If you think right. all of that died in one day, that's only a hundred. Do that 10 times. Yeah. Those are individual lives we're losing every single day. Right. That I think is, I think resonates better with people than a percentage number. Because each individual is still a body lost, a human being's life ended. So I don't mean to get too morose on all this. No, you know, I, I kind of get caught up in the statistics of it all the time and looking and trying to understand it. You know, and, and then the other big picture of it, not that you asked, but I'll go there, is that it's not just you get sick and die or you get sick and then you get better. The people that get sick that do show symptoms we're learning more and more about how damaging that can be to a whole life, right. how it affects the lungs and all of the medical stuff we've heard. And you realize it's not just the people that died are what we're losing. You know, we're losing livelihoods and people are having limbs amputated and they can't breathe and scar tissue and lung transplants and all of this stuff is going on. It is, it's beyond just the death toll. Yeah. No, I, that to me is the scariest part. I think I read something today, maybe that people that, that had survived it, you know, when they did a chest x-ray, they noticed mm -hmm. uh, it looked like a heart attack had happened. Yep. Um, turning to schools for a minute, what's mm -hmm. what's the latest on, on schools in Houston and reopening? And whenever anyone asks me a question about what's the latest, I always have to say things change by the moment. Right. But as I understand from my last looking at that, at least in um, HISD, Houston Independent School District, they are going to be on a six-week wait Okay. And then they will open. Uh, first of all, they postponed a couple weeks to bring us into mid-September. Then it was going to be another. Then that it was going to be a hundred percent online until mid-October, and then in October, it, it, students had the choice or parents had the choice 
to keep their children online or attend schools in person. That was the plan that was put out. I don't know if it's been revised since or more recently. I know that there is uh, challenges coming down from the Texas Education Department on who can close and who can call for closings and different counties are having uh, an issue with what's been said, but as is with most things that are being said these days, it's not exactly finite in the details of what they're saying. Right. And so that will be defined over the next couple of days too. Yeah. So have you heard, you know, callers into your show or anything, what's the general consensus that you're hearing from listeners in terms of parents wanting to send their kids back or wanting all remote or some combination? I think we're hearing all of it. Yeah. You know, yesterday we did a show with a teacher who was on, who was a 10th grade English teacher and is talking about not just her issues with what the plans are and issues is probably a harsh word. It was her, her understanding and her interpretation of it, but also she's a parent and she's worrying what's going to happen to her children and what happens when her children who go to a private school, uh, I think they go to a Catholic school, her working in a public school, if they're on different schedules, what that does to her home life. I know different counties. We talk with the superintendent of, uh, I believe it was Fort Bend County, which is outside of Harris County, which is where Houston is located. And he was talking about, you know, we have a plan, but if a district next to us has a different plan and I've got teachers who teach in one district, Mm. but their children are in a different. And so he said they try and coordinate so that the plans all match, but it's not always happening that way. So they're really, again, my point of view, there needs to be some kind of a broader guideline across the board so that districts all can be matching up. Yeah. And I think we also have to, at the same time, give um, the opportunity for there to be differences depending on your communities. Some are going to be hit harder. Some aren't. Some can be open more. Some can't. I think all of that has to be into consideration when they put these these guidelines out there. Yeah, it is wild just sort of preparing for that. You know, here in Massachusetts, our, our case numbers have been down. They're, they're starting to tick up slightly, but, you know, mm-hmm. by, by the tens, maybe not, you know, hundreds, right. but just enough that you're starting to see that curve go up. But the plan right now is is for in-person classes. And, you know, my daughter's seven and we were just mm-hmm. uh, looking online at, at masks for her and just like the strangeness of sort of, you know, thinking of back to school shopping when I was young and it's like a new pair of shoes right. or, you know, new clothes or something. And that masks are now, you know, part of the school wardrobe. It's just such a weird yeah. time. We did something about that too at one point. We've done something about everything. I'm at sure. This point. Yeah. <laughs> but um, talking about, you know, fi- making mask wearing fun, yeah. getting your kids involved with like creating their own masks or mm. making multiple masks or having different ones for different moods and all the different things you can do. And I mean, I found a company that prints custom masks. So I did a whole bunch of different ones. I sent them out to friends. Some were funny, some were safe, you know, just just to have fun with it, to yeah. kind of show that masks can just be a fun accessory right. and to take away some of the fear of this whole thing, and especially if a parent gets to sit down with a child and work with making a mask, you can make something that may be frightening to a child into a fun project that you get to show off. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see sort of where this where this all goes. Uh, I want to talk to you for a minute just about broadcasting from home too. Like how how has that experience been? Like just sort of getting a home studio set up and you know just dealing with trying to trying to I guess get a show together with your producers all working remotely and just how how has that all come together for you? Once again, it has been pretty easy for us. I don't know. We have been blessed in so many ways during all of this. Mm-hmm. We had started the show in studio. And we were only on for, I would say, maybe not even 10 episodes 
when we the decision was made, we were all moving remote. Uh-huh. And so I I came home with a an earlier version of it and eventually moved up to a Comrex box that was very easy to install through my internet. We've only had one day in all of these months where we had an internet glitch that kind of tossed me off the air during the show a couple times. Wow. But other than that, it's run really smoothly and we've been very impressed with it. We've gotten better with the technology and understanding it and bringing in our guests on different things. We, we've tried a myriad of things, but it's proving that that good old fashioned landline that is becoming extinct is still the nicest way to get our guests in. But we've done cell phones, we've done phone apps, we've done all different sorts of things. I do feel sorry. My, I have two or well, three studio producers uh-huh. and they rotate through and they do have to go into the studio at this point. Just We're to building be at the a board new... and that kind of stuff. And... Well, we also have a board op. We have okay. a board op who's on, who runs the board and does that. And then we have a show producer who goes in to screen phone calls and they they break that up. Two of them switch back and forth Monday through Friday. And then we have another producer who comes in every other week and does the whole week himself. Gotcha. But we have installed or we're in the process of installing a new phone system that's being developed for us. And very soon our producer should be able to screen calls from home. Wow. So it'll be interesting to see how that because they do communicate with our board ops still. So that'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Yeah. I am really impressed with sort of across the media spectrum, just how people have been able to adapt to all this. And just like Mm. the idea that, that you could broadcast, you know, an hour long radio show from home and, you know, even screen calls and stuff now, you you know, in the near future, like that just felt like, you you would never take that step, you know, six months ago in most cases, I would think. Well, I like to think, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. When we didn't have Internet access the way we right. do today, how different all of this would have been. And that is horrible a time as this has come along. It came along technically where we were able to still report on it and have the tools and the the cost was not as prohibitive as it could have been. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you can get a USB microphone for 50 or $100, <laughs> you know, so it's wild. Yeah. yeah, how fast that's all adapted. Well, you brought up sort of your history in broadcasting, and I want to go back just for a minute and sort of talk about what what is it that led you into this field? Do you remember sort of when you got that spark? <laughs> yes. If there was I a spark. <laughs> because a, a lot of my life has been led by the desire to be lazy. Okay. And so I went to school, I went to Loyola University Chicago with the whole idea I was going to be a, a film director or make music videos, what I wanted to do. That yeah. gives you a little idea of my age. But <laughs> I wanted to make music videos. And midway through my schooling, I realized, yeah, that's a lot of equipment to carry around. If I went on radio, <laughs> all I have to do is show up and talk. Right. And uh, I went into radio with a friend of mine, and we, uh, we did a show together in Chicago for a number of years. And uh, when I left that, I went looking for something else. And friends of mine said, you know, you've been doing television. You've just been doing it on radio. Hmm. So I walked back into TV. I'd also worked at NBC uh, during my college years in Chicago. And uh, so I, I was hired up here at Houston Public Media, which back then was Houston PBS Channel 8. And I came on air here and worked in television for the vast majority of my time here at the station over 24 years now. And I started tinkering more and more back in radio over the last couple of years and then had a show uh, last September, I guess it was, we launched it called next question. And that ran through till January. And then with everything that was starting to happen, we put it on hiatus and shifted our focus over to Houston matters, special edition. And so that show has uh, 
I think it's been shut down now as we're going to move this to town square. So, yep, this is this is my new path. So I stepped back into radio having <laughs> thought I was done with it. I want to know, too, just because this is relatively new for me. You know, I've been behind the camera and behind the mic, I guess, you know, for most of my career as a producer. And this is sort of my first foray into into being talent, I guess. So when you prepare for an interview, like you've interviewed, you know, big name celebrities and obviously the work you're doing, you know, now you're talking to doctors and people in the community. Like what's the prep work that you do going into an interview? How much do you look them up in advance, I guess, and try to figure out sort of who you're talking to? Well, it's interesting because uh, for 15 seasons, we did a show that was syndicated nationally called Interviews with Ernie Manus. Yep. And uh, that show we did, I don't know, 300 episodes, maybe, maybe more over the 15 years. And in the beginning of that, and I always was interested in doing interviews in my old radio show, it was interviews back in Chicago, but the amount of time that I would spend prepping for an interview, uh, it would be like five full days. I would, if it was a musical artist, I would get every album. I would read all the liner notes. I would go through anything I could find, read it. And it's funny as over those 15 years, and I'm sure you've seen it too, you learn to do your job better and you learn what you need and what you don't need. And you start to understand the time better and how long it is and what's happening. So that definitely got shorter. And with the internet getting uh, more and more content in it and YouTube having so much, my prep time got shorter and shorter and shorter. That was easier for more well-known or as we call them, recognizable names. Then I was never a big fan. I've never have been of pre-interviews. I would never want to meet my guests beforehand. I'd never want to talk to them beforehand. I wanted everything to be real and in the moment. But that didn't mean you didn't do your research. With this show, we started because I had uh, some other folks assigned to work on the show with me. I had to give them things to do and figure out how we wanted to lay out what would make the show work best. And one of our producers started doing the pre-interviews for the show. And she is excellent at that. And I felt we needed that because these things were much more technical. It wasn't as easy as doing a celebrity. You know, there was more meat to it and more matter to it. And she's gotten very good at doing that. And at one o'clock every day, I get a phone call from her and we go over her pre-interviews and her pre-interviews are pretty thorough and the points are put then into a script for me. And so it loosens me up to not have to really investigate these people as deeply as I would have. Sure. But the flip side of it is I have to stay current on all that's going on in the world of COVID. Right. So I may not know what Dr. Troisi has been doing in her lab work as recently, But I know what the stories are and what people are talking about on the street. And I already know if she has an opinion or a thought on it so I can bring it up. And so it's made it an easier lift for me. But I also think those years of doing interviews, I kind of know what I need. And having the callers is is a big change also because we, we over prep our guests, I think, for every show. We go over a list of maybe 15 different topics Ernie may want to talk to them about. Right. And they get all prepared for it. And then the show starts. I introduce them. The phone lines are lit up and we never get to any of them. <laughs> and I feel sorry for the guests. But a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest, a doctor on on Monday and we had doctors throughout the week. And each guest, it was with Catherine. I'd say, well, just ask them the question. 
yesterday we didn't get to any of them <laughs> so it just kind of rolled over from doctor to doctor yeah oh that's so funny yeah it, it's interesting like I, I i've noticed as i've been doing the interviews i agree with you i don't enjoy doing the pre-interview i don't i don't like talking to the guests beforehand because i don't uh -huh. i don't want to feel like we've already had that conversation or just right. you know kind of fake that like hey remember when we talked about this yesterday can can you answer that question again how you did but i do miss right. like as a producer it was my job to prep that for talent. So like I miss hearing the really good answers beforehand and being like, Oh, ask this question because I know they've got something teed up. That's going to be really good. You know what I mean? Like right, when, when you right. can pre-interview and you sort of know, like this, this question's a home run, this one, they're not so good at answering. So go for the home mm -hmm. run, you know, like it, it's, yeah, it's an interesting balance. I also have a philosophy of, of why I don't like to do pre-interviews besides what you just said. I don't yep. like them to feel like they have to repeat what they just said and right. it loses the freshness and it changes how they answer because they know you've already asked it and you already know the answer. And if they're not a professional in this, they don't understand well, what I already told you, right. you know, kind of thing. But the other thing is I have found over the years, and that's why I have one, one producer who does all the booking and then Catherine does all the, the pre-interviews. I don't want to put myself in the position where they tell me what I can ask or not ask. Mm. So that gives me a buffer between the two. Right. So they may have a conversation with Troy and say, you know what, we will put this person on the show, but we really don't want to go here. Troy can tell me that information, but if it has to happen and we have to go there, I don't feel like I made them a promise. I wouldn't address it. Yeah. You know, or if Catherine is talking to them and, and she hears some information, it wasn't me who heard it. Right. And so I have that one, re one degree of removal. Right. But not to confuse people and think you, we do gotcha interviews or anything no, like course. that. It, that's but not you, our But yeah, but you sort of know like, okay, I, I can ask that because they don't know if I know the answer or not. Totally. Right. That, that right. makes sense. I want to ask you to just sort of, you know, as a broadcaster, as a public figure, Obviously, you talked earlier about your partner. Um, you're you're openly gay and advocate for you know a lot of pride issues and things like that. Was there ever a concern about coming out publicly and just sort of showing that? I feel like there there are a lot of gay people in the in the broadcast industry that try to keep the details of their personal life separate or, or you know keep them kind of hidden away. Was that I guess, at what point did you come out publicly and? And what led your decision to do that? Back in Chicago, when I was doing the radio in Chicago, and that was in the mid-90s, early 90s, yeah. I had come out in one of their their magazines out there. Uh -huh. And it was, you know, I I had no, no reason not to talk about it. I, I wasn't worried about it, you yeah. know. And so when I moved down here to Houston, uh, my understanding was, you know, it's already out there if anybody really wants to look and find out. Right. So... You know, I, I didn't come worried about that necessarily. And then Outsmart Magazine, which is the premier gay magazine here in this area, they they did an interview with me. And in the course of it, they asked me about it. So I talked about it in that interview and then it was going to come out. And it was then that I knew the magazine was going to come out that I thought maybe I should talk to my station about this mm. <laughs> and let them know this is coming. Right. Not that I've ever – I've been, once again, very blessed in this profession. This station here has been wonderful and never was it an issue. Yeah. Never did I get – you shouldn't have done that. So when the magazine was coming out, I went to my management. I said, I just thought you should guys have a heads up that this is coming out just in case you need to know. We are in a, a more conservative part of the – section of the country, sure. if not necessarily a very conservative pocket, because we're in Houston. They were fine with it. They thought it was done well and handled fine. And never really have I gotten any flack from it. 
That's and uh, recently I was in Outsmart again for their pride issue this past June. Yeah. And uh, one of the things they were asking about was, you know, about that whole coming out process. And it was like, just, just so easy for us, yeah. you know, it's good. I mean that, you know, it, it's funny because I'm 36 and like for my generation, I feel like it's just such a non-issue, <laughs> but I right. feel like for older right. people, it is something that you hear about performers and other public figures that really labor over it for a long time and are, are really, concerned about being honest about that part of themselves and you know usually at least nowadays it doesn't it's barely a blip on the radar when they end up coming out like it's just not and, it's not a thing and we can talk about that but i don't want for a moment people to think there aren't people that still have a hard time with it there sure, aren't people course. in places where it's still difficult yeah where they can lose their careers and people can react poorly to them and they can face violence and difficulties in their life i've just been in a position where i've been very fortunate I will say also that when we were talking about it for the magazine this last June, they brought up the fact that they thought, and it's been discussed, that I was the first person on television in Houston to be openly gay. Uh I can't guarantee that, but I do know the landscape has changed a lot in yeah. the last 24 years. Sure. And now, you know, there's 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 a bunch of us out here on yeah. television in Houston. Right. <laughs> and so it has changed. And I think that's good. And I think the understanding, the diversity that needs to happen in our culture is happening, maybe not as quickly as we need it to happen, but it has happened and there are different voices being heard now and that every little step toward it, uh, the whole George Floyd thing, I think is going to make a big difference in how we cover stories, how we understand stories, how we look at different communities. And that's good. All of this is ultimately for the better. No, I, I totally agree. I feel like that that is one of the big positives to come out of this is organizations across the board, and even some that that consider themselves very progressive are sort of having to look at how they're representing their staff. And, you know, are there mm-hmm. are there enough people of color? Are there enough LGBT people represented? Just we, we, we talk this game and we, we have this progressive agenda, but are right. we really reflecting that in, in how we're hiring and, and who we're retaining? So, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's it's a very important piece of all this. Um, I want to talk about some lighter stuff, too, <laughs> just to sort of end it here. But you hosted a show, Manner of Speaking, that was sort of a, a Downton Abbey recap, uh, you know, a talk show after each episode of Downton Abbey that aired on a number of PBS stations. I have not gotten into Downton Abbey. Like, should I? I haven't. It, it's not to say that I, I, like, watched it and was turned off. Like, I just I haven't started it. Is that a show that is that a show that I should start? Like, what am I missing? If you are going to binge watch something, uh-huh. I say go ahead and binge watch Downton Abbey. Okay, it it still holds up. It's still fun. Yeah. And then once you hit season three, you let me know, and I'll send you my private collection of manner of speakings. Okay. Because we started in the third season after yep. the show each episode, and did our our show afterwards, and. You know, there's just something fun about that show. And I think the key to it and the reason we could do an after show and we were one of the first after shows out there wasn't as as prevalent as it is today was that they had a sense of humor about the show. They knew when they were writing a funny line for one of the characters and they let you enjoy it as a funny line where a lot of the PBS masterpiece dramas take themselves very seriously. Sure. So. When it came to an end after the sixth season, 
everyone was like, well, is Manor speaking going to continue? Are you going to do other masterpiece shows? And I'm like, I don't know that other ones treated themselves in such a way that we can have fun with it. Right. You know, it, it would come across as maybe disrespectful or not, not living up to the, the importance of the program. Right where Downton knew they were a soap opera, you know, they knew that the Dowager Empress was going to say that funny line (laughs) and they wanted you to laugh at home when she said it. So when we came on afterwards and we were outraged or shocked or said something off color, it could live in that universe. Yeah. So yeah, it it was, it was a great, a great run. And it's funny because I had been here, I don't know, I want to say 16, maybe 17 years when we started manner of speaking and it, it was a gift because usually in your career, you don't get a relaunch at that point. Right. And all of a sudden I was the new kid on the block again. <laughs> and a lot of people, we were open to a whole new audience that had never watched interviews or manner of weeknight edition or the after party or any of the other shows right. I had done before that. And it's still, it's, it's the thing I get recognized for most That's people funny. will still come up to me and say, aren't you the guy from Downton Abbey? <laughs> My favorite was when the movie was coming out, uh, people would come up to me and they'd be like, so you know about the new Downton Abbey movie? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. And then they'd say my favorite thing. Are you in it? <laughs> and I'd be like, I wasn't even in the show. Right. Why I was I the guy after. The movie? <laughs> yeah. But in their minds, we all became one in the same in the oh, markets so that funny. aired our show. Right. And it kind of was part of the experience. And it was it was great fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Two celebrity encounter questions. Um, one is okay. uh, you you toured with Al Pacino for a long time uh, mm-hmm. doing this uh, Pacino one night only show. Like, yes. how did how did that happen? How did that come into being? Well, I'll tell you one thing. We would still be touring with the show if Al's career hadn't taken off so big again. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's so busy now that right. they, they put him on hold. Pacino, One Night Only, was the show. It came. It had started right before it came to Houston. And they had decided early on, after the first couple shows, that it would be best to have Al with an interviewer, somebody okay. to talk with him. Yep. And so the organization that was bringing him in asked me if I would be willing to do it. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Just for the Houston and, performance at that point. Right, just here in, in Houston. Yep. And the week before the performance, I was in a biking accident and broke both my hands. Ooh. And I tell you that little piece of it, because I was laid up then for a week. Yeah. And I sat home and I watched everything Al had ever done. Yeah. You know, it was hours and hours of Al Pacino films. And I had never been a huge Pacino fan. Right. I'd always appreciated him, but I'd never really been one of those rabid fans. And I learned so much about him watching all of the work and uh, went in, did the show, went really well. I was on massive painkillers because of my hands. (laughs) And about two weeks later, his agent called and said, listen, Al really liked doing the show with you. Would you be willing to do more of these? And I was like, absolutely. Can you tell me what it was he enjoyed the most? Because I had very little recollection right. of the show. You're high on painkillers the whole time. And they said, yeah. just do what you did in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't know if I've hit the mark since, but I keep doing it. And every time they ask me to come out, I'll go and do the show with them. And it's been it's been a lot of fun. And I also think the broken hands created a different dynamic between Al and myself Yeah. in that when he walked into the theater the first night with me, he saw the casts and they were kind of wild looking things on my hands. Yeah. And that gave him something to ask me about. Yeah. And right. it changed our whole dynamic. So he's like, Oh, what happened to your hands? <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I was in a, Oh my God, how did that? And so instead of me being like, Oh, Mr. Pacino, it's such an honor to meet you. Right. It flipped the dynamic a little bit. Totally. And I think that's what gave us the, 
the ramp up to doing the show. He he enjoys doing it with me. I enjoy doing it with him. And we've done maybe about a dozen of them over the years. Got to celebrate his 72nd birthday with him. Wow. And uh, that was surreal. We were in Miami doing a show. And uh, that was just wild. <laughs> it sounds like so much fun. It was like fun. going to dinner with the Godfather. Right, you know? totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then the last one, uh, I saw you, you met Julie Andrews last year too, right? Yeah. Tell me about that experience. You know, I will tell you this. I was, I was more concerned about meeting Julie Andrews than anyone else yeah. and doing that show. Right. And I, I don't know where in my mind I got the idea that she would have a certain distance to her hmm. because she's Dame Julie Andrews. Right. She comes from a certain pedigree and all of this. She could not have been more warm and friendly and loving and funny and just a great time. They were they were bringing her in for the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation luncheon, and they needed someone to interview her, and they asked me if I would do it. <laughs> of course, great. I was not going to say no to right, that. Right, right. And we got to do it. I got to know her daughter and her, and we had a wonderful time together. She was, she was charming. Yeah. She does have that almost, you know, that queen feel just because right. she's been in our collective <laughs> minds for, you know, 60 years at this point and just, yeah. and she is so proper that, yeah, that, that you get that feeling like she's the queen of England or something. But It's interesting over the years watching how that plays out with celebrities right. and how they are the ones that are most successful at interacting with you is the ones that recognize that you are going to be uncomfortable with them because of the stature they've achieved and that they work to disable that as quickly or disarm that as quickly as possible and connect with you. And Julie did that. Julie Andrews did that so beautifully and so quickly. She was, she wanted me to sit down and have a cup of tea with her, you know? And it was like, Oh my God, it's Julie Andrews. (laughs) I'm still at heart a fanboy of all these people. And it still kills me when I get to work with them. You know, <laughs> no, it's the best feeling. I'll tell you just real quick that that story of sort of disarming, you know, a celebrity. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was at this old house, Nick Offerman came and did a, a guest appearance on the show. And this is like right after Parks and Rec had wrapped. So he was, you know, still a really big deal. And everyone was really excited he was going to be there. And I wanted him to be comfortable. So I told everyone in the office, I'm like, just, you know, be cool. Don't talk to him. Don't ask for pictures. And we had, you know, maybe an hour. So like he w- he was doing a show in Boston and we had a very narrow window for him to be able to get back and, you know, make his curtain call and all this. So I was like, just don't distract him. So our receptionist who was, you know, 21, 22 at the time, he walked by and she was just gawking. She couldn't believe, you know, he was there and was trying not to stare, but couldn't help it. And so he just walked up to her, stuck out his hand and goes, hello, I'm Nick. I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> and I just thought it was the perfect line. I'm like, oh, I love that. Because as yeah. you say, it just totally flipped the script. We did one with uh, Robert Redford. Uh-huh. Uh, I interviewed Robert Redford. And before the interview, everyone was in the, the little green room with him. And he asked everyone to leave the room so that he could have some time alone with me. And when everyone left the room, he sat down and he just wanted to ask me about me. Oh, And it wasn't, so what are you going to ask about? What yeah. are we going to talk about on stage? It was to show, you know, I, I'm interested in you too. And I thought, wow, that was cool. That's awesome. I won't tell you another prominent actor who I thought I could be really clever and funny with. And I said a joke with him when I first met him and it went the total opposite way. <laughs> and so those things happened too. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but we fixed it and everything was fine by the end. <laughs> All right. Ernie Manus. That was a fun one. I, I was worried going into that, that the coronavirus stuff would weigh me down. And it's just so serious. And there's so many different pieces to that story that I was worried this could be a very serious interview. But as you heard, Ernie is able to take these serious topics and 
somehow keep them light and keep people like me feeling optimistic about it, which I think is just, it's so important right now, right? Again, you can stream Houston Matters Special Edition at HoustonPublicMedia.org daily at 3 o'clock central. You can also get it as a podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Probably the same place you're listening to me right now. Go search Houston Matters Special Edition after we get off this and uh, go listen to it. And uh, speaking of podcast apps, don't forget you can leave me a rating. You can leave me a review. Of course, subscribe. I'm sure you've already done that. So thank you. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me some messages there, too. I love hearing from you guys. We'll have a new show on Monday. I'll talk to you then. Stay safe.